Good afternoon. Thank you all for being here. Appreciate your indulgence. We just came out of a vote, so we'll get a late start here, but I appreciate it. Uh, this uh, subcommittee meeting on the Western Hemisphere will come to order. The hearing today is on the U.S.-Columbia relationship, and it's entitled New Opportunities to Reinforce and Strengthen Our Bilateral Relationship. So there's two things I wanted to achieve with today's hearing, which we've been trying to get for some time now, the, and, and that we really want to do is, is first is obviously talk about the U.S.-Columbia relationship, and, and second, uh, review it by and large, but second, and most importantly, our, our commitment, uh, restate our commitment and what we can do to be helpful to Colombia and to the Colombian people. And at the outset, I would say it's impossible to talk about Colombia today without talking about Venezuela and the destabilizing impacts that that crisis is, is having, uh, beginning, of course, with over 1.4 uh, million Venezuelan migrants who are now living in Colombia, the, uh, reportedly over a billion dollars a year that the Colombian government is now spending on social services and health care and the like, and also the threat that's posed, the direct threat to the Colombian state, to peace and security in Colombia by armed narco-terrorist elements operating with impunity just across the border with the uh, open support and cooperation of the Maduro regime. And that poses a threat not just to Colombia, but ultimately to our security interests and to the region at large. It, today, that safe haven that the regime has provided uh, is, is for two organizations that the State Department has uh, designated as foreign terrorist organizations, the FARC and its dissident elements that are now there, and the ELN. So this will be an opportunity to hear from our witnesses. We'll provide an update on the implementation of uh, the so-called peace accord on the new government now that it's been there uh, uh, for over or close to a year, the and the political dynamics, the direct U.S. interests that are threatened and impacted by what's happening there today, and, um, and then some ideas about how to strengthen our cooperation on all these issues. Uh, just some key facts that I want to leave here on the record is, is my view that Colombia is our strongest, most capable ally in the Western Hemisphere on a series of fronts. Uh, for me personally, obviously, my, there are many Colombians, uh, Americans of Colombian descent that reside in the, in the United States, including um, a substantial portion of my family since my wife is of Colombian descent. But that's not what we're doing or hearing. But nonetheless, we are. And uh, so it's a very vibrant community, very engaged and involved. Uh, Colombia, unfortunately, and I know this issue from having been around it, even predating my public service, has a very long history, a very long struggle to restore peace in the country, and plagued for decades, first by very powerful and murderous drug cartels, by these Marxist and narco-terror insurgencies. And, and this has been a bipartisan mission under both Republicans and Democrat administrations to support Plan Colombia and Colombian-led initiatives to ensure stability in the country. It really began under the leadership of former Colombian President Uribe. And the important work continues to this day through the current administration. The support for the new Duque administration is paramount for our cooperation on shared diplomatic security, counter-narcotics, rule of law, human rights, economic development. And so the combination of the generous support of the American people and the incredible work and sacrifices made by the Colombian people, Plan Colombia became a model for effective and targeted foreign assistance. After many years of negotiations with some of these uh, FARC elements, former Col uh, Colombian President Santos, the President Duque's predecessor, and uh, concluded what I personally viewed as, but again, it wasn't 
for us to make this decision, but what I viewed as a peace accord with significant flaws with the largest guerrilla organization in Colombia, the FARC, which is a terrorist organization. It's well known for plotting against the Colombian government from their safe haven in Venezuela, including as well. And they are frankly responsible for the deaths of Colombian police officers and innocent civilians in just the last year. In just the last year that uh, they've conducted attacks they've came credit for. There's another narco-terror group which I mentioned, the ELN. They have over a thousand fighters inside of Venezuela. And now they've been joined by these dissidents of the, the FARC elements who are also operating in the same area right there in the border region. And so now thousands of ELN and FARC dissident fighters that are, are newly re-energized by recent defections from some who were cooperating with the peace accord and then defected, and as I said earlier, by the open support of the Maduro regime, and this presents a very serious security challenge to the region, to Colombia, and ultimately to our nation's interests as well. Human rights violations against civic leaders are also a concern. Both the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights of the OAS and the UN Office of High Commissioner have reported and verified the killings of human rights defenders and social leaders. I believe President Duque has taken strong steps to ensure Colombia remains stable. He's even gone to great lengths to preserve aspects of the peace agreement, aspects, frankly, that were favorable to the FARC. Unfortunately, these efforts were met with high-level defections and a return to narco-terrorism for many of the FARC's leaders and followers. So I believe we indeed are living a critical moment, not just for Colombia, but for the region. So earlier this year, I wrote an op-ed that recommended some steps that the United States could take to support Colombia and the Duque administration, specifically that our country should provide strong support and financial assistance to continue this fight against the illicit flows of cocaine through our borders. And this includes things like providing unmanned aircraft or drones that can spray coca crops, increasing intelligence support to operations targeting these illegally armed groups, ensuring additional equipment, funding, and, and, uh, and training for riverine units. So I hope that our witnesses today will explain the critical nature of these programs and of the challenges that they address and, and reassure this subcommittee that assisting Columbia remains a top priority for this administration. I uh, would like to close by recognizing the significant steps taken by the Duque administration, not only in welcoming, as I said, over 1.4 million migrants uh, fleeing the man-made catastrophe created by the Maduro crime family, but also for being a strong partner to the United States in the fight against external forces that aim to destabilize our region. And with that, I now recognize my calling the ranking member, Senator Cardin. Well, let me thank Senator Rubio and his wife for this hearing. Uh, this is an uh, important relationship to the United States and Colombia. We have invested about $10 billion in Plan Colombia. I believe that was a wise investment for U.S. interest. Uh, we are now moving towards the implementation of the peace that eluded us for five decades. Uh, and there's many reasons why this has been a wise investment to change the relationship to a very strong relationship between Colombia and the United States. First, combating the narcotics traffic. We know that's a major challenge, it's been a major challenge. Uh, we have uh, ended the Civil War and implemented an historic peace accord. And today, Colombia is helping us meet one of the largest migration crises in our lifetime uh, from Venezuela. In regards to drug trafficking and the trade, progress has been made. There's no question about that, but there's still a major hub for cocaine production and distribution in our hemisphere. Uh, 
Uh, and it is, I think, critically important that we strengthen the partnership between the United States and Colombia to deal with the drug trafficking issues. The Coca farmers, uh, they need the tools and training to develop alternative sources of income. And when we look at the ge geography where most of these farmers are located, they're concentrated in areas that are most vulnerable to armed groups responsible for the internal conflict in Colombia. That's gonna require our support to be able to deal effectively uh, with that challenge. Implementation of the Peace Corps, November 2016, five decades long civil war with FARC. The Santos government negotiated the agreement, the Duque government now is charged with making sure that it is implemented. Yet in, on August 29th, a faction of FARC has indicated that they would be taking up arms. They haven't done that yet, but we know that we have to be very attentive so we don't go back to the type of violence that we saw uh, before the peace accords. This is not gonna be easy and it's been made a lot more difficult because of the challenges the chairman mentioned in regards to the migration from Venezuela. Uh, we don't know the exact count of how many Venezuelans are in Colombia. We believe it's around 1.4 million. That's an incredible burden to any country, but a country that is struggling in transition like Colombia, it is a, a, an incredible uh, hurdle to have to overcome. And that number could increase. There is indications that as many as 600,000 more could be coming in from Venezuela. Clearly, Colombia cannot deal with that without a strong partnership from the United States. In April, Senator Blunt and I introduced a resolution reinforcing our commitment to working in partnership with Colombia. This legislation, first and foremost, reaffirms U.S. government support for the Colombian people as they work towards peace and stability in the territories previously in conflict. It commends the government of Colombia's progress thus far and recognizes the United Nations Verification Mission for its role in implementing the 2016 Peace Accords and disarmament. It asked the Colombian government to make protecting community leaders and human rights activists a top priority. And finally, it urges the United States Secretary of State to strengthen the U.S.-Columbia partnership by continuing our security and anti-narcotics cooperation, supporting the Peace Accord and its special jurisdiction for peace and contributing to the aid needed to support Venezuelan migrants in Colombia. I am proud also to co-chair the Atlantic Council's U.S.-Columbia Task Force with Senator Blunt. I wanna thank our witness, Jason Marzak, the director of the Atlantic Council's Adrian Ash Latin America Center for his role in bringing together this bipartisan, bi-national, multi-sectoral group to increase cooperation and improve outcomes for the goals shared between the United States and Colombia. We look forward to the release of the U.S.-Columbia Task Force report later this month. I remain committed to working with my colleagues on both sides of the aisle to bolster the U.S. partnership with Colombia, increase U.S. engagement on combating narcotics production and trafficking, uphold the 2016 peace accords, and providing both vulnerable Colombians and vulnerable Colombians and Venezuelan refugees uh, the critical need they need in, in Colombia. But also, it's important for the stability of our own Western Hemisphere. I look forward to hearing from the witnesses as we probe these issues. Thank you. I'll recognize the uh, ranking member of the full committee, who I know has a keen interest in these items. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I want to thank you and Senator Cardin for calling this incredibly important hearing. 
I don't always come to subcommittee hearings of, of the subcommittees of the full committee, but in this particular case, the, uh, the hearing on Columbia is of particular importance and interest to me. Uh, having traveled to Colombia in July for talks with President Duque, his administration and civil society leaders, I remain convinced that Colombia is our single most important partner in South America. Our strategic partnership stands as a model in the hemisphere. So I look forward to hearing from today's panel on our long-term vision for strengthening this partnership, as well as how we can best support Colombia in addressing current challenges including challenges to its 2016 peace accord, challenges related to counter-narcotics and, counter and from the Venezuelan crisis. Without a doubt, the recent move by the former FARC commander to return to arms marks the single greatest setback to Colombia's young peace accord. Press reports indicating that this group of FARC dissidents is operating out of Venezuela underscores the nefarious nature of Maduro's dictatorship. But this development is not the only challenge to accord implementation. I'm deeply concerned about the violence faced by civil society across Colombia. As I heard from Colombia social leaders in July, their heartbreaking stories underscore the fragility of peace. I hope to hear from INL and USAID about how we can best support our Colombian partners as they address this violence, expand state presence, and implement the accord. And while the 2016 Accord is far from perfect, it is the best opportunity that the Colombian people have to heal the scars of decades of civil war. It's also essential that we remain unwavering in our cooperation to help Colombia combat high levels of coca cultivation and cocaine production. Historic levels of cultivation leveled off this year, and I give that credit to the Duque administration. But we have to expand efforts to help them drive down these numbers. Specifically, I look forward to hearing a comprehensive strategy from INL that attacks every aspect of trafficking operations, including emphasis on eradication, but also increase initiatives to strengthen the rule of law and address money laundering. I also hear, hope to hear how USAID reinforces INL programs and Colombian initiatives to create uh, programs for transitioning to the legal economy. Finally, I'm deeply concerned about the destabilizing nature of Venezuela's refugee crisis. During my travel to Cucuta in July, I heard directly from individuals fleeing the humanitarian tragedy in, in Venezuela and saw its impact on Colombian communities. 30,000 people crossing every day, Venezuelans crossing every day on the bridge uh, to get basic foodstuffs and essentials that they cannot get in Venezuela. But 10% uh, of those stay in Colombia every day. It's overwhelming for any nation. So I commend the administration for dedicating more than 300 million across the region to address the Venezuelan exodus, but we need to lead a global response. I've been advocating a donors conference that matches the magnitude of the crisis. And if we want to have any credibility in this process, we must provide temporary protected status to Venezuelans in the United States. You can't have a travel advisory that says do not travel to Venezuela and then send back people to Venezuela who should be here under TPS. Let me close by saying I caution that comments like President Trump's claim in March that Colombia, quote, has done nothing for us are blatantly false and risks undermining our strategic partnership. For two decades, there has been bipartisan consensus on supporting Colombia 
and I look forward to reaffirming that support when I host President Duque in New Jersey this weekend. With that, I want to thank our witnesses, the chairman and the ranking member, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. We'll have two panels. Our first panel is administration officials, the Honorable Kirsten Madison, who's the Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, the Honorable John Barza, Assistant Administrator for Latin America and the Caribbean at USAID, and Mr. Kevin O'Reilly, Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs at the State Department. We'll begin uh, with you, Ms. Madison. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to, be, to appear before this distinguished subcommittee. Uh, the drug trade in Colombia directly and adversely affects the safety, security, and health of Americans. Colombian cocaine contributes to the rising overdose rates in the United States, particularly when combined with synthetic opioids. In 2017, nearly 14,000 Americans died of cocaine overdose, the highest on record since 2006, and three-quarters of these cases also involved opioids. Uh, U.S. foreign assistance to Colombia and every gain made against the production and trafficking of cocaine saves American lives. In 2018, the United States and Colombia committed to a five-year goal to cut coca cultivation and cocaine production levels in half by 2023. Colombia made uh, very early progress in rolling back record high cult coca cultivation and cocaine production levels with production levels in 2018 decreasing for the first time since 2012 and that's really due to President Duque's aggressive counter-narcotics policies and courageous work by the Colombian police, the military, and teams of civilian eradicators. It is also the direct result of our, our steadfast support. We have a long road ahead, uh, but I am confident that with robust U.S. assistance, the Colombian government can succeed. Uh, we have a common goal. We have a plan that's yielding results. And most importantly, I think there's political will on both sides to tackle this challenge together. Um, I was actually on the staff of this committee when Congress was considering whether or not to invest and invest big uh, in Plan Columbia. In those days, the conversation was about the potential for Columbia to become a failed state. How far we've come. Uh, security gains under Plan Columbia led to the end of the region's longest conflict. The recent call to arms by FARC dissidents with strong ties uh, to Venezuela and elsewhere is intended to undermine the nascent police and the security won by Colombia's police and military but I think this should only strengthen our resolve to stand by the Colombian people as they work to secure a just and enduring peace, uh, a peace that they deserve. Colombia's narcotics challenge is linked inextricably, I think, to the Venezuela crisis. The ELN and FARC dissident groups and other transnational organized criminal groups operate from within Venezuela. In many cases, these drug traffickers and armed groups benefit from the enabling environment created by the illegitimate Maduro regime, um, and I think, frankly, that our investments in strong partnership with Colombia, Peru, and our recent restart of the program in Ecuador are critical to, to counteracting the sort of poisonous effect that Venezuela is having on the crime and drug front. My written testimony details Colombia's counter-narcotic successes and developments uh, through the last year, um, but let me highlight a few. President Duque quadrupled the civilian manual eradication groups from 23 to more than 100 groups and brought the cultivation numbers down for the first time since 2012. That's a big accomplishment. In the first six months of 2019, Colombia destroyed 56% more coca, nearly 70% more coca base labs, and 5% more cocaine labs in the same period in 2018. In 2019, the Colombian Army captured nearly 2,200 members from the ELN, FARC, dissident groups, and Clan de Golfo, nearly double the number arrested in 2018. INL provides significant support for manual eradication, the backbone of President Duque's eradication program. Uh, we intend to support, if the Colombians decide to proceed, the start of a safe and effective Colombian-led aerial eradication program. 
following uh, the Colombian uh, Constitutional Court's clarification on the issue. Um, frankly, eradication is only part of the solution. The key to our success and sustainability is supporting Colombia's whole-of-government approach that expands rural governance and development across the country. Among other steps to promote rural security and governance, INL is constructing rural police bases in key narcotics trafficking and historically far-controlled areas, and working to on professionalization of police and on getting them more present in rural areas of the country uh, where they can have impact on the daily lives of ordinary Colombians. Uh, USAID efforts, as my colleague can further attest, are also critical uh, in partnership with this. INL's rule of law and rural security programs in tandem with USAID's alternative development and land titling uh, activities are fundamental to supporting Colombia's effort to meet the basic needs of rural communities and, and to crowding out criminal actors. Alongside our eradication, interdiction, and rural security efforts, INL is helping the Colombians to go after the profits of criminal groups by working on anti-money laundering training and support for managing seized assets. Our investments in judicial training and technical assistance can help to build Colombia's capacity to prosecute complex crimes, including financial crimes, illicit gold mining, and crimes against human rights defenders and social leaders. Our efforts to promote the rule of law and the protection of human rights in rural areas are linked directly to our counter-narcotics efforts. It is no accident that the killings of human rights defenders are most prevalent where you find armed criminal groups and coca growth. My January visit to Colombia, days after an attack on the Colombian National Police Academy in Bogota that killed 22 and left dozens wounded, uh, frankly underscored for me um, that Colombia's efforts to, to fight back against criminal elements and uh, violent actors really comes at a great cost. It also underscored for me that our partnership is still very much needed. Reaching our shared goal requires Colombia to eradicate coca at unprecedented levels, to work with its neighbors, and to allocate substantial resources towards counter-narcotics. And it requires the United States and others to remain engaged and to support the effort. Our interests in the region lie in Colombia's success, but at its most fundamental level, our engagement and support is also essential to stemming the deadly flow of drugs to the United States and saving American lives. I'm going to stop there, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Thank you very much. Uh, before I turn to you, Mr. Barza, I wanted to just acknowledge that the chairman of the committee was here for a few moments, so and I want to thank him for coming by as well. Mr. Barza, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Uh, Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the subcommittee, thank you for the invitation to testify today. I appreciate this subcommittee's support for USAID's work in Colombia and throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. USAID's work in Colombia advances U.S. national security and prosperity with programs that further adjust and sustainable peace, improve rural economic development and citizen security, promote the growth of licit economies, and help the country support the influx of Venezuelan migrants. As Administrator Mark Green said during one of his recent trips to Colombia, there's no more important relationship in this hemisphere. I completely agree, which is why last month I chose to visit Colombia as my first international trip. On that trip, I was able to witness firsthand USAID's work with the government of Colombia, civil society, and the private sector. I met with key members of President Duque's administration, as well as a number of Colombia's courageous social leaders, including leaders of ethnic and minority groups. I also had an opportunity to meet with Venezuelan migrants and Colombian returnees, many who had just fled the horror taking place inside Venezuela. Each Colombian, I met, each Colombian official I met with reiterated the Duque government's commitment to a strong relationship with the United States. And in each of my meetings, I underscored USAID's commitment to helping Colombia advance on the journey to self-reliance and solidify a long-lasting peace. USAID is collaborating closely with the Duke administration to promote licit economies, inclusiveness, reconciliation, and stability. 
To foster, to foster licit livelihoods, USAID promotes alternative development, increases financial inclusion, and addresses land tenure. A few months ago, Administrator Green and President Duque launched a historic massive land titling program. And just two weeks ago, the program announced the distribution of 1,000 land titles, a milestone in peace implementation. These activities promote stability by giving young people better opportunities to discourage them from joining transnational criminal organizations, or providing former combatants with legal economic opportunities and better futures. At USAID, we believe that sustainable development must include robust participation from the private sector, and we work to leverage private sector funds to maximize our impact. We also work to grow the private sector. USAID helps Colombians in rural areas to find legal economic opportunities, especially in those regions affected by violence and illegal activity. For example, USAID helps entrepreneurs and small producers of products like cacao and coffee improve their products and connect to local and international markets. While we work to foster, foster illicit economies, we know that no sustainable development or lasting peace can occur without the full inclusion of Afro-Colombians, indigenous, and other ethnic groups. I was pleased to hear directly from President Duque's High Commissioner for Stabilization, Emilia Ochila, that the Colombian government is in agreement with this important point. I am concerned about reports of human rights defenders being targeted and can assure you that the protection of human rights defenders and social leaders is a priority for USAID and the US Embassy in Bogota. To address these human rights issues, USAID programs promote respect for the rule of law, support state and civic actors that provide collective and individual protection, and strengthen the government of Colombia's capacity to respond to incidents of violence. We are also committed to fostering greater social and economic inclusion of Afro-Colombians and indigenous communities as a means of advancing peace and reconciliation in Colombia. Another critical imperative of Colombia's peace is reconciliation among victims, ex-combatants, and other citizens. The Colombian conflict and associated violence create, created a tragic legacy of millions of victims. USAID is collaborating closely with the Duke administration to build the capacity of key government institutions charged with delivering services and transitional justice to these victims as mandated by Colombian law. On my trip, I had the opportunity to meet with leaders from the USAID-supported Truth Commission and the Unit to Search for Disappeared Persons to discuss the strategies, challenges, and impacts that these two main institutions are making in the reconciliation process. We must continue to support Colombia's path towards a sustainable and stable peace. And as you mentioned, uh, Mr. Chairman, it is impossible to discuss Colombia without discussing the impact of the Venezuelan migrants. This man-made regime-driven tragedy has forced more than 4.3 million to flee Venezuela. More than 1.1 million of these people are in Colombia right now. When I visited the city of Cucuta last month on the Colombia-Venezuelan border, I saw firsthand the dire humanitarian effects this crisis is having on Colombians and Venezuelans alike. To help the, to help the region cope with this man-made crisis, the United States has provided nearly $377 million since FY17. 213 million of which is to respond to the crisis in Colombia. We salute Colombian President Duque, who has served as a regional leader on this response, and we thank other countries in the region for their support for the Venezuelan people and the legitimate government of interim President Juan Guaido. We continue to call upon other donors to make or increase contributions to help address the crisis in Venezuela, and we are also particularly grateful to Congress for your bipartisan support on this issue. In conclusion, USAID is prepared to continue to help Colombia address its most pressing challenges and secure a lasting peace. Mr. Chairman, members of the subcommittee, thank you again for your commitment to USAID and to our work in Colombia. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. And finally, Mr. O'Reilly. Chairman Rubio, 
Ranking Member Cardin, members of the subcommittee, thank you for convening this hearing. Columbia is indeed our highest performing and most cooperative partner in Latin America. And we, we've built this partnership on shared values and common and vitally important shared interests. This is the fruit of decades of US attention and bipartisan congressional support. Your intense engagement has been and will remain vital to our success. Americans and Colombians work together to make both countries safer and more prosperous. We're working together to expand cooperation on security and support Colombian efforts to slash coca cultivation and cocaine production, promote human rights and democracy, and support Colombia's implementation of the peace accord, and expand economic opportunity and free, fair, and reciprocal trade. In short, we face common challenges together. That includes helping Venezuelans recover the democratic rights enshrined in their own constitution, rights honored by Venezuelan interim president Juan Guaido and treated with contempt by Nicolas Maduro. Colombia is a strong democracy and a vibrant economy. It's a diplomatic leader in the Americas. It aggressively confronts terrorists and criminals within its borders, and it helps train security services across the region. For two decades, Colombian authorities kept up sustained pressure on FARC criminals and terrorists. We take pride in having supported those efforts. That brought the FARC to the negotiating table, producing that peace accord that ended a 52-year insurgency. And Colombia has made real progress on implementation, disarming nearly 7,000 guerrillas. This complex agreement touches nearly every Colombian institution. Making it all work represents a huge challenge and an admirable commitment to peace. Colombia faces its hardest challenges where government presence remains weak. Killings of social leaders, often in these rural communities most afflicted by crime, concerns us deeply. We need to remain engaged to help Colombia defeat the illegal armed groups seeking to fill vacuums left behind by the demobilized FARC. We must ensure that human rights protections remain foundational in everything we do in support of Colombia's transformation. So-called FARC dissidents have scoffed at peace, continuing to break the law and traffic drugs. Now, a few former FARC leaders have quit the peace accord, returning to terrorism, violence, and criminality. The most notable among them all were and all remain deeply immersed in the coca-cocaine economy. We're confident that Colombian justice can and will hold to account those who follow that path. And when they break US law, we reserve the right to seek their extradition. Colombian authorities and the FARC political party have repudiated those who call for return to violence and crime. Outlaws such as Ivan Marquez and Jesus Santrich join the ELN and other terrorists and criminals on the wrong side of history and the wrong side of the law. Assistant Secretary Madison has spoken about our counter-narcotics cooperation. I can only reiterate that we're working exceptionally well with the Duque administration and our Colombian counterparts. The crisis in Venezuela remains a significant threat to Colombia and to the region. And Colombia carries the greatest burden of all. More than 3% of the population of Venezuela, those 1.4 million souls, resides in Colombia, a statistic that should, but won't, even make, make even Nicolas Maduro hang his head in shame. We've been deeply involved in the efforts to address that crisis. Since fiscal year 2017, we have provided nearly $214 million to help Colombia respond to the influx 
in addition to support provided elsewhere in the region. In facing Colombia's challenges, we must never lose sight of Colombia's progress, greater security and greater economic opportunity, and ever more robust democracy. All serve our own national interest in a secure, prosperous, and reliable partner. Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the subcommittee, congressional support has been instrumental in the success of the past 20 years. It remains the foundation of our successful partnership with the people and the democratic institutions of Colombia. Thank you, and I too look forward to your questions. Thank you. I'll defer my time. Uh, I know members have to be in other places, so we'll start with the ranking member. Well, let me thank all three of our, our witnesses. Uh, Mr. Raleigh, I want to start with your observations. And as I said in my opening statement, I strongly support the progress that we've made on the relationship between the United States and Colombia. It's in our national security interests, and I'm proud of the progress that we've made. It's based upon shared values, and you mentioned specifically promoting human rights. So how can we explain so many human rights and social leaders who have been attacked in recent times in Colombia uh, and that we see a rise in the safety of protecting human rights in that country. Uh, what are we doing to hold the government accountable to protect the rights of its citizens? Senator, it, and, and we all have seen this over the years. This is a problem of longstanding in, there seems to have been a spike of recently. In, in Colombia, and indeed, it's been a severe problem in the short term. Over the longer term, I think the, the country has done a substantial job in improving the general long-term uh, uh, trajectory, but indeed, uh, it's incredibly important to, um, to focus on the areas where they've been under the most pressure. In these rural areas, as Assistant Secretary Madison was saying, often where the trafficking is uh, most severe. Um, we have... Are you satisfied that the Duque government's paying enough attention to this problem? I, I do, sir. I, it's an immensely large country. Um, it's a severe problem. 470 uh, in the relatives human rights leaders and social leaders have been assassinated since, 76, uh, since 2016. You're satisfied they're doing enough? I'm satisfied that they're working hard to, to confront the problem, sir. If one of these people suffers that sort of violence meted out against them, if they are murdered, it is one too many. And uh, it's, it's, in that sense, clearly unacceptable. The challenge, of course, they face is vast and complex. Um, we have engaged with them consistently through the embassy. It's been a regular top of conversation when we meet with their senior authorities here in Washington as well. Are, are we engaging the Colombian military and police about this issue? Yes, sir. Are we getting, what type of response are we getting for their protecting the rights of citizens that are raising concerns about their own country? We've seen, as and, and I will uh, commit to getting you the, the, the most precise numbers I can. We've seen uh, a relative increase, as I understand it, in the number of closed cases in investigations, but that, of course, is post facto after the fact of these attacks. We've seen this, them move 
resources into some of these uh, rural areas, and even in a period of economic austerity, the relative focus of their budget across the board in security and in other social uh, expenditures tends to be focused more towards uh, rural areas and more towards these areas identified as, as being uh, hot areas of conflict. And there's obviously a, much more that has to be done. So the, uh, Mr. Duque was originally not a supporter of the peace process. He now has the responsibility as the leader of Colombia. He has been implementing the peace process. We've seen significant concerns as to the implementation, including, as pointed out, uh, the FARC's um, sources starting to come back to life. Uh, how do you judge uh, how we can be helpful to make sure the peace accords are, in fact, implemented? When President Duque took office, he put forward about a half dozen different concerns, mostly focused on procedural issues with the structure of the peace accord. Uh, and he brought those forward in his political system. Uh, when uh, it finally came to the constitutional court uh, and his uh, position did not prosper within, I believe it was three days, he signed the, um, he signed the, uh, the implementing legislation. Well, we, I, I know that, but we we're now but we're seeing it getting off track. Mm -hmm. What are we doing to work with the Duque government to, to get this aggressively implemented? Uh, the, the messages that our, our former chief of mission, Ambassador Whitaker, uh, the messages that our current chief of mission, Phil Goldberg, have brought to the, to the administration, our engagement with them here, uh, all is in support of uh, helping them bring this agreement uh, forward where they have uh, made an emphasis, and I think it's a correct emphasis, on a firm line against those who would stand against peace and uh, working as, as aggressively as possible to support those who have put down their arms and are working towards uh, integration into, into the society. Um, they've had significant success, particularly in those areas where FARC, uh, ex-FARC combatants have concentrated their efforts uh, or have concentrated themselves in, in communities in keeping those people safe and keeping them engaged in politics uh, as the FARC party. Uh, and I think our fundamental mission is helping them advance that uh, message of a, of a firm line with those who cross the line and being as supportive as possible in implementing what is going to be a long and difficult process of bringing this peace uh, uh, process to a successful conclusion. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Portman. Thank you to uh, Chairman Rubio and Ranking Member Cardin for having the hearing, and I appreciate the testimony today. Uh, I was involved back in the, in the day with the free trade agreement with Colombia. Um, I negotiated uh, with President Uribe directly, who rolled up his sleeves and jumped into it and was very enthusiastic. Um, I see now that our trade with Colombia, although significant, um, is uh, not growing as fast as their trade relationships with China. In fact, the Chinese investment and trade with Colombia has grown exponentially, being now their second largest trading partner and uh, their second largest exporter. 
So I guess one question I'd have for you all, and I know Mr. Marchek's coming up from the Atlantic Council. He talked about this some in his testimony. But I wonder if you could talk a little about the trade relationship. And I don't know, Mr. Riley, maybe you're the right one, or, or AID, Mr. Barsa, but how's it working, one? And are you concerned about the Chinese influence in Colombia and the stronger economic relationship there? On the whole, it's been a success. The process of economic reform over these last 20 years, the greater stability in the country, uh, it, we are drawing more Colombian investment into this country. We are, uh, U.S. firms are uh, making uh, substantial commitments in foreign direct investment. Uh, the economy, you know, I was the Columbia desk officer, was it 15, 16 years ago? The economy in Colombia now is more than twice the size of what it was then. Um, they do trade with China, and that trade is growing. Um, uh, we all trade with China. The question is how fair and how um, how uh, well, they, they open trade, and transparent that trade is. There's more and more China, but also there's more and more Chinese investment in the country. And I guess my question to you is, are, are you concerned about that from a national security point of view, particularly because it seems to be displacing some of our investment if you look at the numbers? Thank you, Senator. We've, um, we've made it clear uh, with our counterparts in, uh, in Colombia um, that they should um, look closely. Uh, and it's a message we've, we've shared with others in the region as well, that they should look very closely at the character and quality of, uh, of the relationships they enter into uh, with, uh, with Chinese counterparts. Many of them are state-owned firms. Uh, many of them do not necessarily have the same uh, commitments to openness and transparency uh, that uh, we would expect from our firms and that Colombians expect from their own. So yes, indeed, uh, we've asked them uh, to take a very close eye at the quality of those and the nature of the security implications of any investments that, might, uh, that uh, they might consider accepting from, uh, from Chinese sources. We talked about some of the good news, uh, and there is a lot of good news on the economy, on the stability in the country. Uh, what President Duque has done is really the, you know, the third or fourth president who's brought that kind of stability, and um, particularly with, with regard to the peace agreement, uh, things are, are in better shape. And yet, I saw just late last month, even a few weeks ago, one of the splinter groups uh, from FARC called for returning to arms um, and an armed conflict with the government. I think it was in relationship to the number of people who had uh, been resettled or who had left FARC who had been assassinated. Uh, are you concerned about that? And um, what, if anything, should we be doing after spending significant amounts of uh, American taxpayer money, about $10 billion, I think, over a period of uh, a couple decades with regard to playing Colombia? Should we be concerned that this is starting to unravel, or, or do you feel as though it's just a, a splinter group without much significance? Sir, I'm... I, I Sad to say, I'm, I'm very much concerned, but, but I'm not surprised. Uh, the leading figures uh, uh, who participated in that uh, announcement on August 29th uh, had been distancing themselves from the FARC political party and from uh, the commitments they had made to the international community, to the Colombian people, um, uh, for some time. Uh, uh, Mr. Marquez had stepped back significantly. Uh, Mr. Santrich uh, was uh, under, um, under criminal investigation in his own country and under indictment in our own. Uh, they, 
continued to engage in criminal activity. Uh, the only thing I can you. be heart, I'm sorry, sir. Didn't surprise you that those individuals uh, would have been unhappy with the process uh, of uh, the, the peace agreement in effect, but what should we do? And my time is coming to a close here, but what should we do in relationship to that? And second, with the 1.4 million Venezuelans in Colombia, I know you're gonna talk about this response to other questions, but we'd love to hear for the subcommittee's purposes, you know, what should we do uh, at this point um, that we're not currently doing. So if you could, you could uh, maybe take those questions um, for the record, that would be great. My time has expired, and I appreciate all three of you being here. Absolutely, and The other witnesses sir. in the second panel as well. Senator King. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to the witnesses. Um, you know, people wonder whether the United States foreign policy or investments can make a difference. I hold up Colombia as an example, and the fact that it's still fragile and it still needs work, I, I think does mean that we need to continue to be involved. I think we have been persistent. Uh, we have been willing to invest over a long haul. We've been bipartisan. It began with Presidents Clinton and then Bush and then Obama and then President Trump, and that's been really important. It's had great support from bipartisan members of Congress, and I do think we have high stakes in, in maintaining it. I've heard the names of President Uribe and President Duque mentioned often. I haven't heard anybody mention President Santos, who won the Nobel Prize for his work, and so I want to put his name on the record because it's involved successive leaders who don't see eye to eye on everything, but it is, has involved leaders who have been willing to do very hard work. Um, I also went to uh, uh, Cucuta and to uh, Bogota in March, and one of the reasons I went was primarily to follow up on the Venezuelan issue, but I was, I was worried that I was hearing uh, in this room from witness tables relatively rosy scenarios about what might happen and how quickly it might happen. Uh, I was hearing that from others as well. And I was struck when I went in March and visited both with uh, uh, Colombian uh, leaders, governmental leaders and leaders in the sort of NGO space. And then when I was at the border in Cucuta, I wasn't hearing such uh, rosy optimism about the likely timing of developments in Venezuela. And this is a hearing about Colombia, not Venezuela, but I, I, as I look at the challenges of, that Colombia has, I, I share Senator Rubio's uh, opening statement about the value of Colombia as a partner in this hemisphere and around the world. I remember going to the Sinai and looking at Colombian troops who were there as peacekeepers in the multinational forth, force of observers protecting the border between Egypt and Israel to see Colombia uh, you know, assert itself as a peacekeeping nation around the world. What a wonderful thing. So we, we need to do what we can. But, of all, but, they, but there are significant challenges with the peace process, with trying to integrate parts of the country that had not been invested in for decades back into the country. But I still think the thing that poses the most risk to the peace process is this massive humanitarian and security crisis in Venezuela, the, the, the refugee effect in Colombia and others. So... I just would sort of like you to to give your thoughts to the committee uh, as of as of right now, you know, mid September, 2019, w to help Colombia. What should we be doing, this committee and Congress? What should we be doing more to hasten peace efforts, negotiation, and other efforts to bring stability to Venezuela? Should we be uh, doing more bilaterally? Should we be engaged with the CARICOM? A process of Caribbean nations, what, what would your advice to us be? I, too, have been frustrated in my colleagues with, um, with the um, difficulty in bringing 
definitive change and an improvement of conditions in uh, Venezuela. Uh, Mr. Maduro may not know the time nor the hour, but I think it's clear uh, that his ability to uh, continue this is not infinite. Uh, I think the best way that we can help Colombia deal with this is, um, is work in concert with Colombia and other like-minded governments in the region to make it harder and harder for Nicolas Maduro uh, to uh, evade the inevitable. All it does is drag out the suffering of the Venezuelan people and those people that you met in Cucuta and you, Senator Menendez and others, um, uh, who've been forced to be expelled effectively from their own homelands. Um, that includes uh, economic sanctions, not on the country, but on those who are oppressing the country. Uh, and it, it means uh, closer, ever closer cooperation. This is one reason that we joined the um, Guaido administration uh, uh, recently in uh, calling for a meeting of the Rio Pact. Um, not uh, for any other reason but to more effectively coordinate our humanitarian and our uh, sanctions regimes and have a practical discussion with our counterparts in other governments as to how we can, uh, how we can provide relief and how we can do a better job um, uh, uh, hedging in Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Maduro, because yes, indeed, these externalities are coming at a stiff cost, not just for the Venezuelan people, but for the people of the, of the rest of South America and indeed the Caribbean. I, uh, my time has expired, but I may submit the question uh, for the record to try to get witnesses on both panel one and panel two's responses. Thank you. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you all for being here. Um, I wanted to talk really about the, the importance of women in the peace settlement with the FARC and whether you see that being important going forward and what we can do to continue to ensure that women have an important role to play in further negotiations and in the future of Colombia. And I don't know, I guess, Mr. O'Reilly, that I would direct that first to you. We, we absolutely do, ma'am. Um, and it is clear, although I, I may defer to Mr. Barca for more of the programmatic aspects of this, ma'am, but it's, it's clear to us that where people successfully um, protect uh, uh, the role of women in this process, in the communities where that is most effective, the degree of, what do you want to call it, backsliding or recidivism is less. It knits together um, families, it knits together the communities and creates a, a totally different kind of a circumstance. Uh, these aren't just individual actors along with the 7,000 or so demobilized uh, combatants uh, the Colombian authorities have recognized a, a, a nearly equal number of people who are supporting, and many of those were women. Um, you're absolutely right, and I think it's important to point out that research has shown a direct correlation between peace and security and a society's treatment of women, that more than levels of wealth, democracy, or ethno-religious factors, that the best indicator of a state's peacefulness and stability is how well it treats its women. And 
we have, as I'm sure you all are aware, legislation that passed in 2017 signed by the President called the Women, Peace, and Security Act that encourages us to partner with other countries to ensure that women continue to be part of the political process and be part of any conflict negotiations. So can you talk about how you see that continuing to be implemented? Maybe you or Mr. Barca um, would be better to address that from USAID. Uh, thank you very much, uh, ma'am. So it was very important to me when I was in Colombia to meet with human rights leaders, leaders of indig indigenous groups, Native and leaders of uh, women, uh, women's groups as well, because as you stated, you cannot have any stable peace or development without the inclusion of all sectors of societies, in including women. Um, so when I was in Bogota, I met with people like Marino Cordoba, the uh, director of the National Association of Displaced Afro-Colombians. But, and later on when I was in the field meeting with human rights leaders, uh, I met with um, Dora Cortez, who's the coordinator of a women's roundtable in Tumaco. And we were discussing just how USID programs to support uh, human rights and inclusiveness have been helpful for these groups and, how, and, and have a dialogue to see how, how we could do better. Uh, overall conversations I had with members of the Duke administration, we were in agreement on all these points. So we have programs in place and we're constantly looking to uh, refine them and improve upon them. Thank you. Um, Ms. Matt Madison, you pointed out the um, Colombian effort to reduce cocaine cultivation and production um, by 50%, I think by 2023. Can you talk about um, the interconnectedness of the illegal drug trade from Colombia through Mexico to the US, what we're doing to try and address that and how we're working cooperatively with those countries in their counter drug efforts as coming from a state where the opioid epidemic has really taken its toll. The more we can do to keep drugs out of this country, the better we can help people who are struggling with substance use disorders. So our program in Colombia um, is a very long-standing program. It's, it covers everything um, really from the coca field and demand reduction uh, to working with law enforcement on interdiction, on investigations, um, targeting the assets and infrastructure of transnational organized criminals. Um, and I think, you, you know, you've seen ebbs and flows in the success of eradication. Um, that has to do, I think, with uh, some shifting realities. I think in the process of securing the peace accords, there were certain incentives that were created actually to increase cultivation. Uh, you had the end of aerial eradication, and, and we saw the, the, the spike begin to rise. I think what's important now is that um, the curve is flattening, uh, and uh, which is absolutely critical. It's not enough, uh, and and over the next couple of years, we need to work with the Colombians directly to continue to drive that down. Ninety percent of the cocaine in the United States comes from Colombia. So while there's production in Peru and there's production in Bolivia, Colombia really is the the core of the effort. Um, and I think um, just to just as an aside on the on the peace agreement, I think you they the Colombians have to continue to take this issue on because this is how they will be able to put deep roots down in the rural parts of Colombia. This is, right, they, the FARC is off the battlefield, by and large, uh, and they're no longer fighting an insurgency while they try to do this eradication and try and take this on, but now they actually have to get out into these communities, take it on, do the eradication, uh, do the kind of things that, that um, John and his team work on, which is alternative development. It's a key plank of um, 
of President Duque's game plan, uh, the rural security piece, and we're supporting it from INL. Um, the challenge that we have, of course, uh, is that this, the cocaine moves, it sweeps up the isthmus, it goes to Mexico, uh, the paths cross sometimes with opioids, which dramatically increases the lethality. Um, and I would say Mexico and Colombia are really the two poles of our, of our efforts in the Western Hemisphere. Again, in Mexico, it's a, it's a different relationship and a different program, but we are also working with the Mexican government to start in the field, you know, target ports, help on interdiction. Um, and I think it's a constant uh, effort because these groups continue to evolve their, their tactics and their skills. Um, but these two countries working together are the absolute essential piece of it. I am quite worried actually about what's going on with synthetic opioids in Mexico. Uh, it's a very specific issue that we need to take on with them and figure out a game plan on. Um, but I think these two countries, very sort of expansive programs, much more expansive in Colombia, are the key. Uh, the other thing I would say, which has fundamentally changed from even a decade ago, uh, is the fact that we now have Colombia leading in the hemisphere. They are leading complex, you know, 18-nation missions to do interdiction. They are out working, they're working with Ecuador, which was not happening uh, even just a few years ago. So we have the Colombians actually helping us fill the space and helping us build the capabilities of other partners. So I think we're trying to connect the dots up the isthmus from Colombia to Mexico. Um, there's a lot there uh, and there's a lot of complexity to it. Um, and I think the, the key is that we just can't let up. Um, and when I say the Colombians have done spectacular things with eradication in this first year, I mean it. It's amazing, but it's not enough. It has to continue. It has to expand. We're right there with them. And I think if we get it right in Colombia, we, we begin to really change the calculus all the way up the isthmus, with the exception of synthetic opioids in Mexico, which I think is a separate issue and a really critical one. And, and at this point is is what's really killing people, the synthetics. I think that's right. I mean, that, as, I, as I said, the, the, the statistics show that of the 14,000 cocaine deaths in 2017, three quarters of them involved opioids. Right. Um, and, and, and that is, it, it's because opioids are cheap. They're easier to produce. You don't have to worry about somebody eradicating your fields. Um, and the agility of the synthetic opioids uh, business model is actually really dangerous. Um, and I'm not surprised we're seeing proliferation. Um, it, the, the, what's most concerning, of course, is that it's proliferation right on our border. Um, and so this requires time and attention. I'm actually uh, headed to Mexico in October uh, really to talk about this. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Menendez. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you all the witnesses. Mr. O'Reilly, uh, you know, it, a dissident faction of the FARC announced that it will rearm, and it is believed their operations are supported by the Maluto regime and conducted on Venezuelan territory. President Duque has backed this claim about the location of the FARC dissidents. What do we know about the location of the FARC dissidents, and can you confirm President Duque's claims? Senator, we know that people have moved in and out of across that border. Uh, in fact, in, indeed, the Colombian authorities uh, have, have stated that these uh, that some of these people are now lodging themselves there. Uh, to the extent that this continues, uh, it creates uh, a circumstance which is 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 quite um, 
uh, quite a challenge well, for the Colombians. It can get a lot worse. Because I, I appreciate what you're saying, but that's not my question. My question is, what do we independently know about FARC dissidents uh, and those who have called back to arms being in Venezuela? And does that coincide with the Colombian assertions that the FARC dissidents are now inside of Venezuela? I can say that I know that they've moved back and forth and that on an occasion they, are, they have settled in there. For the rest of it, I, I would, if, if, it's, uh, if it's okay with you, sir, I'll take the question and we can discuss it offline. Are you telling me it's a classified answer that you need to give? I, I tell you I have to investigate that, sir, oh, before I can give you a definitive answer. Okay. But you come to a hearing uh, where on Colombia where we know we're going to talk about Venezuela, and it seems to me a simple enough question to have been prepared for. Anyhow, uh, I, I want to know what the answer is to that. Absolutely understood. Uh, what steps is the administration contemplating to hold the Maduro regime accountable for its willingness to allow foreign terrorist organizations like the ELN and now this dissident group of the FARC to operate out of Venezuelan territory, if our assertion is, uh, along with the Colombians, that they are in Venezuelan territory? Sir, we are, um, we're constantly uh, assessing the, uh, the uh, activities or, or their support for, the, for these, uh, these sorts of activities of any foreign terrorist organization and any international acts of terrorism linked to that. Um, and, and we, in terms of dealing with the Colombian authorities, are, uh, are regularly sharing as much, whatever information we have and as much as we possibly can in coordinating with them so that when they're, op when they're operating inside Colombian territory, the Colombian authorities can, take, can uh, respond effectively to that. It's unacceptable that uh, the Maduro, uh, Nicolas Maduro, and those who support him uh, would um, would offer any um, uh, top cover for these people or any safe haven to them at any time. Well, excuse my impatience, but I have limited time. So the question is: Are we considering particular sanctions? Because Venice, beyond what we've done in Venezuela, because of what Maduro has done, are we looking at designations here of terrorist organizations? Are we looking at others that have given refuge uh, and are part of facilitating these terrorist organizations operating out of Venezuela? Some suggest the Cubans have something to do with that. Uh, do, are we considering any of those things? We're constantly assessing the question okay. well, of designations. Uh, all right. But you can't give me any designations that you're contemplating right now? No. Okay. Now let me ask you, well, maybe this one will be simpler. Uh, I have been pressing for some time. I appreciate what the administration did. As a matter of fact, legislation that several of us on this committee have promoted uh, is to actually advance a more robust amount of money because of the realities that uh, Colombia is facing every day uh, with over 1.4 million Venezuelans uh, that are, have now stayed in Colombia, not just transited through, but stayed in Colombia and growing. So while $350 million is a good thing, it's nowhere near the magnitude of the crisis. Why hasn't the administration engaged in creating a donors conference 
to have others. This is, this is going to rival Syria at the rate that it's going in terms of the displacement of people. Uh, so I'm not suggesting we should bear it all, though I am suggesting we should do more. But why isn't there a donors conference that has been pursued? Either you or Mr. Barsa maybe can help me with this. Uh, Senator, it was heartening for me to learn how other countries have assisted with humanitarian assistance, as well as some of the aid that was uh, trying to get through Gugutta when you were there. But uh, cer certainly we call for other countries to increase their assistance in this area. Whether Regarding the specifics of planning for a donors conference, I have no information I could share. Mr. O'Reilly, any plans for a donors conference? Uh, the question, uh, apart from the the conference is that we're constantly arm twisting our other colleagues to, uh, from other governments and to, uh, to step up and do more. Well, it seems that if we convene a donors conference, number one is we're going to invite countries to join. They're going to have to say what they're willing to do or not to do. And it would be far more significant in resources uh, than what we have given and what is needed. And so, uh, you know, uh, we talk about the Colombians being responsible to do a series of things, which I agree with, but we need to help them. They're in our own hemisphere. This is one of the largest refugee crises that we have had in our hemisphere in quite some time. We need to help the Colombians be able to achieve this goal. They've been incredibly good neighbors. You know, they haven't done what some other countries have done, which I know we're closing the border. So we need to help them. I don't understand why there is a reticence on creating a donors conference. If I may, just one last question to Secretary Madison. You know, uh, during my recent meetings with President Duque and the U.S. Embassy in Bogota, I stressed the need for a truly comprehensive approach to counter narcotics. And while I understand the administration's priority on eradication, given the uh, alarming levels of coca cultivation, we certainly cannot expect to achieve long-term success without a balanced approach. Now, I heard you refer to a balanced approach. As an example, I'd like to see INL place greater emphasis on money laundering and financial crimes. While the department submitted congressional notifications for $250 million in FY 2018, only $4 million, or 1.5% of the funding, will address money laundering. What steps are you taking to ensure a comprehensive approach? and ensure that adequate funding for issues, including money laundering and the rule of law, are part of it. It would help if I turned it on. Um, Senator, I do believe that we take a comprehensive approach to, to the um, reality of drug, the drug issue in Colombia. Um, we are working really on all fronts in supporting the efforts of the government of Colombia to reduce demand, to reduce supply, uh, to disrupt TCOs, uh, to push out on rural security and improving rural security um, and all the sort of elements of that. And, and the rule of law and anti-money laundering efforts and asset forfeiture efforts are an important piece of it. I will say, um, I think I arrived in INL uh, last year thinking that actually we needed to modernize and think more creatively about our anti-money laundering programs in general uh, because I think money laundering has continued to evolve uh, and, and our training and other things hadn't evolved in the same way that the money laundering tactics of criminals have. Um, in Colombia specifically, we, we have had training uh, with IRS and UNODC to build investigative skills. 
Um, we have had ongoing efforts to build the capabilities of judges who actually look at asset forfeiture and these financial cases. And looking forward, we formed a, a, an actual technical working group with the Attorney General's Office, which owns an investigative, uh, financial investigative arm. Uh, it owns an anti-money laundering unit. It owns an asset forfeiture unit. Uh, and we think that that will, will will continue to generate um, ideas on what else we can do. We've also brought in the FBI to, to, to do an assessment to look at other things that we could put on the table to be helpful to the Columbians. Uh, and more recently, I my, took my team over to sit down with FinCEN and talk a little bit more about what else we can well, I do. I appreciate all so, that, but if 1.5% of your total money, uh, total uh, monies for Columbia are going to money laundering, it seems to me that if I get your money and I squeeze you, uh, it's one of the ways in which I harm you the greatest. And so I, I would just urge you to be looking at a, a more robust engagement in this regard so that we can uh, actually get to the traffickers' monies at the end of the day, uh, which, uh, which I think can be an enormously debilitating and help fuel some of the things we need. Mr. Chairman, I thank you for your indulgence. Thank you. And I'll take my time now here at the end unless there's any more questions. I want to narrow in, Secretary Madison, on, on the drug trade that we keep focusing on. There's no doubt that, you know, coca has grown, maybe even be processed in these labs out there, but then it has to be moved, okay? And some of that is maritime movement, is that correct? Some of it's put on these boats? I think they move it any way that they can. Well, part of it is air. But a big part is maritime. Right, so let's talk about the flights, because there are airplanes that land in these fields in Central America and then trafficked up across the border. There are others that go into the Caribbean uh, and, uh, and, as a, and some of it leapfrogs from the Caribbean into the U.S., but some of it leapfrogs from the Caribbean to Europe. There's a growth in the, in the cocaine that's being shipped to Europe, correct? In fact, there's growth in cocaine, the cocaine market around the world. I've, I was recently in London, and I was recently uh, in Australia, and in both places, cocaine is actually an enormous issue, and it's coming from this hemisphere. Right, and, and, and those would have to be aerial routes. I imagine they're not taking these little fake submersibles, su submersibles all the way over there, right? Actually, they do get boats that cross the Southern Ocean and go to Australia. Fast boats. But, but, right. but I'm, I'm assuming that that's not the preponderance right. of it. The point I'm trying to raise is when those flights happen, where are those flights originating? What is the path those flights are taking? There's, there's a number of pathways, but we have noted, which I imagine is, is uh, an issue of concern uh, to you in particular, is we have noted a pattern of flights leaving Venezuela. Right. Uh, um, there is also a vector, a maritime vector, uh, through Ecuador up the East Pack, which is actually pretty significant. But, but, but the, the focus, flights is, a lot of them are Venezuela. Right, on the flights to Venezuela, and, and, and the flights to Venezuela, how many of those have been, that we know of, have the Maduro regime interdicted and stopped and called up and said, we have these drug traffickers here that we caught? Um, because I'm not on the operational side, I, I can't answer you with absolute certainty. I'm not aware that we're getting substantial cooperation out of Venezuela on the issue of narcotics. In fact, I, th I think it's quite the well, let opposite. Me ask you, is it fair to say that these people who are flying these drugs are deliberately flying through Venezuelan airspace to avoid radar detection by either the Colombians or otherwise, and certainly taking off from airfields in Venezuela? I and mean, that's fair to say. 
What I, th what I think is always fair to say is that narco traffickers will take the path of least resistance. And if there is a place where enforcement is not done, where there isn't you know, sort of a denial of use of airspace, uh, and where there is no official effort to, to, to block them, they will take it. The other instance where they that can take like it Venezuela. is when there isn't capacity, which is also the case in some places. Well, Venezuela has capacity to control its airspace. We've seen them do it when they have to. The point being is one of the paths of least resistance is there are air flights leaving Venezuela with Colombian cocaine, a significant portion. I, I, as I said in my, in my testimony, let me just reiterate, I think Venezuela is an enormous problem on the counter-drug issue. I think the fact that Venezuela does not work with, with us or its neighbors in the way that it once did is very damaging to the larger effort to take these issues on in South America. It is why it is so important that we are working with the Colombians, working with the Peruvians. We brought Ecuador back online. And, and really that's about, in some respect, it's about the objective realities of a place like Colombia, but it's also about the failures in Venezuela. Well, I know there was a question asked earlier by Senator Menendez. The Deputy Secretary of State, Mr. Sullivan, has said on the record that Venezuela acts as a safe haven for criminal organizations, meaning, and he was referring to the ELN and these dissident FARC. They're, they're criminal organizations because what, what criminal enterprise are they involved in beyond murder and kidnapping and things of this nature? I mean, obviously, there's a, there is a narco-trafficking nexus right. uh, into Venezuela. And, and, if they're, and if the Deputy Secretary of State is saying they have safe haven and the Colombians saying the same, well, so we have these narco-trafficking organizations operating in Venezuela. I believe that's correct. The, I'll tell you why I'm getting to that point, because so... All this eradication stuff is important. And by the way, there's a, there, there was a direct correlation between the ending of the aerial eradication under a court order and the spike in production. So that, that, that's, that, and that was under a court order, and, and now they, I know they've worked through it. The point I'm trying to get at is all these things we're doing with the Colombians are important. What they're trying to do is important as well. But as long as you have a, two major drug trafficking organizations, if not more, operating openly with little to no formal resistance, and often, I believe, I think the evidence is clear, cooperation of a neighboring, government, or a neighboring regime in a neighboring country, there's no way to deal with this. As long as there is these criminal elements operating with impunity across their border, uh, trafficking these drugs, operating in this way, I don't know how we wrap the bow and, and really deal with this problem. Uh, I certainly think it makes it much harder, as I've said. Um, I will say, even at a time when we had more cooperation out of Venezuela, it was still absolutely critical that we were present and working with the Colombians and with others. Of course. But this but is most assuredly not making it easier, and, and in fact, it's really undermining a lot of the good work that's going on. Well, I mean, not only do you have these narco-trafficking organizations operating out of Venezuelan territory, they, they also have, as a, as a side... Um, uh, intent to overthrow the government of Colombia. And so you, you have these two things laying. I, I guess the point I'm trying to raise is I personally do not believe, and I believe the evidence supports this, that we could ever truly address the production and, and, and sale and trafficking of, of cocaine out of Colombia without addressing the fact that these groups are operating with impunity from a neighboring territory, and the Colombians, right now anyways, can't do anything about it because of what the implications of that would be. I want to talk about the peace deal because I think it's important to bring some clarity into that. You know, the peace deal, one of the guys that showed up in the video the other day, uh, by all accounts, certainly wasn't in Bogota, so he was probably in Venezuela when he put out that video about how he's going to take up arms again, is an individual who, after the peace deal had been signed, after he had been given, handed a seat in Congress, 
was caught along with his nephew shipping 10 tons of cocaine, and he was indicted, and the DEA went after him. His nephew is now a cooperating witness, so we're going to learn a lot more about all this. The guy, Centrich, uh, 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 was able to fight extradition, and then winds up on a video a few weeks later saying, I'm out of the peace deal because they're not being nice to me. You're a drug dealer. And he's a drug dealer after the cocaine, after the, the peace deal was in place. And all of a sudden, the peace doesn't make sense. Look, I guess we should have expected it because I imagine he took a major pay cut going from drug dealer to congressman. Uh, it was a huge pay cut, I imagine. It was very lucrative to be in this business. But I think it's important to point out that, that, that this peace deal uh, that people now say is falling apart is they're not taking up arms because people are being mean. Not that there are problems in implementation, that's always the case. But many of these elements broke away initially because they don't want to give up the money that it produces. And this guy, after the deal was signed and he was supposedly a congressman, was still tried to ship 10 tons of cocaine and the DEA went after him. So I, th I think that's really important. On the violence issue, that's irrelevant. You know, we've had seven candidates for local and municipal elections assassinated, and they're like from different parties across the board, and there's all kinds of causation. In fairness, President Duque announced, I believe yesterday or the day before, that he's providing security to some of these candidates. Some of it is, appears to be regional in nature, a regional dispute of some kind. Some may be related to these groups and so forth. And if a candidate says they're for aerial eradication, all of a sudden people are taking shots at you. But, but what I want to leave clear is what we're talking about violence against, we're, we're not certainly, at least in the last, in this administration and in the previous, we're not talking about state we're not talking about the army or the police assassinating these people. We're talking about political candidates and human rights activists being assassinated by paramilitary groups from the left, the right, rival, you know, gangs, criminal gangs, the like. But, but just to be clear on the record, we're not talking about Colombian authorities murdering people. And I think the question is whether enough is being done to provide them protection. And obviously, but, but I'll wrap this all up in a second by putting, and on the diplomacy front, I know that's been mentioned. Last week, Mr. O'Reilly, is it not the case that the United States and Colombia, along with 10 other countries, invoked at the OAS the beginning process of raising uh, the, what's commonly known as, as the Rio Treaty, uh, which took a significant amount of diplomatic work. I know it was underreported, but that took a lot of diplomatic work. Um, and I think one of the things that's been lost in a lot of the discussion about the region, because the focus is on US policy, is, I think, a pretty unprecedented, certainly in the last decade, regional diplomatic commitment on this issue of Venezuela, uh, obviously that impacts Colombia. Uh, um, am I correct? There was 12 countries that helped bring that to the forefront? Yes, Senator, absolutely. And it took an immense amount of work. And most of that work was done by South Americans. We, of course, follow this closely. We are members of the Rio Pact. Uh, we are signatories of the Rio Treaty, and we are uh, deeply engaged in this. But it was Colombian diplomacy. It was, it was uh, Chilean diplomacy, it was Brazilian diplomacy, and many other governments besides all working together uh, to try to figure out how they can protect their interests. They're the ones who are receiving millions of people expelled by Nicolas Maduro into their territory. They're the ones who are having the health risks imposed on them by, uh, by this migration right. and, the, and the security risks and the... And the and the, the whole gamut of challenges. And I guess just to be fair, because I'm not, you can talk about other parts of the world and how, what role diplomacy has played in other parts of the world and other policy challenges. But when it comes to the issue of Venezuela and Latin America, I, I think it's truly underreported and, and largely unknown that there has been significant diplomatic work done 
honestly, with no modern precedent in terms of, you look at the Lima group that we're not even members of. We, we accompany them, we attend meetings, but that's a Latin America initiative that we've been fully supportive of. And of course, the work at the OAS, which has taken two years of consistent diplomacy by the United States, by others to get to that point. And that's an important thing to point out. And, and I think the, the point that I'm trying to make here is the following. One of the problems I have with US foreign policy under administrations of either party is sometimes I worry that we're not good to our friends. We're sometimes nicer to adversaries than we are to friends, and that's troubling to me. You know, you're North Korea, you put people in, in camps, you do all these sort of atrocious things, and you get meetings, and you can fill in the blank and mention other places. I don't know of any nation that's been more cooperative in this hemisphere on virtually anything we've ever asked them to do with us than Colombia. And if you look at the, what they're facing, it's pretty daunting, okay? They have not one, but two well-funded criminal organizations operating with impunity out of a neighboring territory without the cooperation of the regime that controls that territory. These uh, drug trafficking organizations that want to overthrow the government have an ideological bent, but largely, even though they're Marxists, they apparently like money because they like selling drugs. And then you have your neighboring regime mobilizing troops. He says 150,000. That's... It's, Maybe it counts a bunch of people holding broomsticks, but he's got people. He's moving stuff and, and assets in the region and mobilizing it. You're facing 1.4 million migrants in the country spending over a billion dollars a year on social services and on education and the like, on top of all the other challenges you have trying to develop your economy. And by the way, all the donor stuff is important, Mr. Barr. I don't know how much money the international community has given to this, but um, I also know that, for example, some neighboring countries, good friends at the OAS, are now requiring visas uh, for entry of Venezuela, which only pushes even more Venezuelan migration towards Colombia. This is an untenable situation that they're facing. They've got this pressure on eradication, pressure to deal with political violence, pressure to do all, and on top of that, have to deal with the costs, a billion dollars or more a year of, of dealing in a humane way with, with these neighbors that have come over, uh, a, a hostile regime next door uh, with equipment provided by Russian arms dealers and others, uh, drug trafficking organizations, one, not one, but two, that actually control territory and operate with impunity. This is a lot of pressure on one country. And, and I know we've been very helpful, but I also think we need to recognize the sheer volume of challenges that face Colombia, and that doesn't mean that we can't be critical, and that means we can't point to things that they can't be doing better, but I also think we have to be fair in acknowledging that they are facing an extraordinary array of challenges, and I'll end with this. It's very simple for these countries to go around and criticize Colombia on this, that, or the other. I don't know of any nation, certainly in the world, uh, and even in this hemisphere, that would tolerate or could tolerate for an extensive period of time armed elements operating with impunity from a neighboring territory without the cooperation of a regime that controls theoretically that territory and sit there with their arms crossed and do nothing about it. We wouldn't tolerate it. We wouldn't tolerate it. No, we wouldn't ask anyone else in the world to tolerate it. So I think it's really important for us, I'm not saying any of you have not done this, but for everyone to recognize that the sheer volume of challenges facing Colombia, I know, has, knows no precedent in this hemisphere, none. And, and it's, it's amazing, in my view, that they've been able to do what they've done up to this point, given all these challenges hitting them all at once. Mr. Chairman, if I might, I certainly uh, share your frustration. The Venezuelan issue um, is not going to be resolved in the next couple weeks or next couple months. I think all of us had hoped that we would see a transition to a democratic elected 
government by now. The circumstances in Venezuela has become more complicated because of the criminal elements and the outside support that the Maduro government has received. So it's a reality that we have to deal with today's hearings on Colombia. I couldn't agree with you more. The leadership of Colombia is dedicated to the principles that we have set out in Plan Colombia, and that is democracy, protection of human rights, peace, economic progress, etc. The capacity to deal with these issues is challenged because it has transitioned from a near failed state to a state that is making great economic progress. But now you put into it the challenges presented by Venezuela that you've already mentioned, uh, and then the burdens of 1.4 million migrants. That's why I questioned earlier as to what we are doing and what the inter and Senator Menendez, what the international community is doing in order to support the leadership in Colombia to support the democratic process, the implementation of the peace process, the challenges related to the drug trafficking, uh, and the circumstances of the border with Venezuela and, and the migrants. And as pointed out by our witnesses, they're moving in both directions and using Venezuela as a headquarters for the, potentially for the resurgence of FARC elements to try to disrupt the peace process. So uh, I, I appreciate our governmental panel, and this is sort of a transition to the next panel. I hope that the private panel will have some concrete suggestions for us as to how we can increase the capacity of Colombia to deal with these challenges and where the United States can play a critical part in making that a reality. But I just really wanted to share your, your frustration as to the external factors that have made it much more difficult for Colombia that was on a path with obstacles now becoming even more challenging. And my, and my last point on this is I, I would encourage, as I have privately and, and, and publicly, the administration to, con, to view our relationship with the Colombia no longer simply in the vacuum of its own territory, but all of those external factors yeah. that are facing it. it. It is, in my view, near, it is impossible to address the fundamental challenges we're talking about here today and not address the, the complexity uh, created by the fact that some of the groups the prominent groups behind many of their challenges operate with impunity from a neighboring territory, and a mafia acting as a government controls that, under arms, controls that territory. So that's going to have to be addressed as part of this. There's no way to do one without the other. And uh, so I appreciate all of you and the time you've given us here today. Thank you very much. And we're going to uh, call up our, our next panel. When we make that transition, I'll introduce them. Um, and I appreciate, again, the time all of you have given us. All right, our second panel. Christine Balling, the Senior Fellow for Latin America Affairs at the American Foreign Policy Council, and Mr. Jason Marzak, the Director of the Adrian Arsch Latin America Center Atlantic Council. And um, probably a shameless plug here while we make this transition, Ms. Arsch is, uh, I don't know if she's still a resident of Florida. She was a longtime resident in Miami, Florida, and a big benefactor. I know she spends a lot of time here in 
in, in Washington and, and has uh, invested in the Atlantic Council's work as well. And uh, so I want to welcome both of you here. We'll, we'll turn. Usually we have like four people on the second panel. By the time I'm done introducing everybody, it's all set up. But today we had to move much quicker. Um, Ms. Balling, we'll begin with you. Thank you for being here. Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, uh, members of the committee, thank you very much. Uh, first, I'd like to make a brief mention of my background as it relates to U.S.-Colombian relations. For six years, I operated a nonprofit organization that promoted democracy and youth leadership in areas where the FARC and the ELN were recruiting young people. I worked closely with the Colombian Armed Forces and U.S. Army Civil Affairs teams downrange. Additionally, in 2013, I was hired to serve as a subject matter expert to the Special Operations Command South Commander on demobilization and counter-recruitment issues. My work included interviewing newly demobilized FARC and ELN fighters and creating the Columbia Army's first tactical guide for individual demobilization. I have two specific recommendations as to how the U.S. can better help Colombia. With regard to the Venezuelan refugee crisis, to date, the Colombian people have been incredibly welcoming of the Venezuelan refugees. It is relatively easy for Venezuelans to obtain a temporary border card to enter Colombia and have access to emergency health services as long as they enter an official border checkpoint and remain in the four of the departments bordering Venezuela. However, as hundreds of Venezuelans seek refuge in Colombia every day, the Colombian authorities will need more assistance in order to maintain security and good relations with the civilian population. To this end, the United States should increase funding for U.S. Army civil affairs efforts that support the Colombian Army's Acción Integral teams in the border region. Acción Integral teams work for and with the local communities. Their initiatives include relatively low-cost community engagement and infrastructure projects. In addition to fostering a trusting relationship between soldiers and the people they protect, successfully executed Axion Integral projects lessen the influence of bad actors who rely heavily on civilian cooperation in their day-to-day -day operations. The more unstable a given area is, the easier it is for bad actors to wield influence and recruit from the local population. For example, given their dire economic circumstances, Venezuelan refugees are particularly vulnerable to recruitment by bad actors, especially if they feel government presence is lacking. In some border areas, the Colombian army is all there is in terms of state presence. Therefore, it is crucial for a soldier to win the trust of the community by working alongside civilians to improve it. Additionally, unchecked xenophobia can destabilize a community to the point where it becomes a security issue. Executing Action Integral projects that engage Colombians and their new Venezuelan neighbors could lessen tensions between them. Uh, a note about improving Colombian Army intelligent networks. Uh, no doubt, members of our intelligence community have been working this issue, but it warrants a mention in this forum. The United States should support the modernization of Colombian intelligent networks. Each Colombian Army division has its own regional intelligence team, known as a RIME. The RIME teams are highly effective in gathering human intelligence within their respective areas of operation. 
However, intelligence sharing mechanisms between Army divisions and across other branches of the armed forces are lacking. If Colombian military intelligence is to be prepared for an increasingly complex security situation, continued investment in overhauling existing databases and intelligence sharing networks is warranted. I mentioned about the Peace, Cord, Peace Accord implementation. In 2016, when the Santos administration and the FARC representatives signed the Peace Accord, they did so knowing that implementing it as written would be very difficult to do. As an example, it was known that the Colombian government could not fully finance it, as estimated costs over a decade are in the billions. It was also known that certain, certain FARC fronts would never demobilize and that the highest ranking commanders might not be fully committed to abandoning their old ways. As it happens, Ivan Marquez and three other FARC commanders recently announced a renewed call to arms. Not surprisingly, these former peace negotiators blamed the Duque administration for failing to meet its accord-related commitments. Ivan Marquez's call to rearm based on deep-seated grievances is a disingenuous and a, and a mere excuse to return to narco-trafficking and other illicit activities. It is therefore crucial that a, quote, FARC 2.0 be stripped of political legitimacy if indeed it turns to violence. A note on the political situation. Unfortunately, the Duque administration's political rivals are also critical of its accord implementation efforts, going so far as to say that it is intentionally sabotaging the peace accord. The Duque administration must more effectively counter this narrative and publicize its successes while explaining how it is addressing the challenges. In sum, Colombia continues to be one of the United States' strongest allies in the Western Hemisphere. While most Americans are not aware of what the United States and Colombia have accomplished together for the betterment of both our nations, I thank Chairman Rubio and the members of this subcommittee for dedicating a hearing to this important bilateral relationship. Thank you. Mr. Marza. Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished members of the subcommittee, it is my privilege to address you on the critical importance of the U.S. partnership with Colombia. First, I'd like to thank you for your longstanding continued bipartisan support of Colombia, one of the United States' strongest, most reliable partners in the entire world. I will be summarizing my written testimony. Colombia today shows how long-term U.S. commitment can pay incredible dividends, but as discussed today, it is facing major headwinds. Partnership with the United States at this moment is pivotal. We must double down to support our ally and capitalize on the broader potential of deepened U.S.-Columbia ties. The issues of historical focus must continue to be addressed, security, counter-narcotics, human rights among them. But Colombia is and can increasingly be a partner for the United States on issues ranging from trade and investment to partnering and solving other regional challenges. It is for this reason the Atlantic Council's Adrian Arcelot America Center convened our U.S.-Columbia Task Force, and I thank Senator Cardin and Senator Blunt for co-chairing this effort. Today, given rapid changes in the Western Hemisphere, U.S.-Columbia security, economic, and geopolitical interests are more intertwined than ever before. We work together to fight international drug trafficking and transnational organized crime while promoting democracy, rule of law, and economic prosperity in the region. Through its leadership in the Lima Group, Colombia is spearheading efforts to address the crisis in Venezuela. While the ratification of the peace deal in 2016 represented the opening of a new chapter for Colombia, it has also led to new challenges, among them securing and directing the necessary financial resources to implement the accords, expected to easily surpass $30 billion. The recent call to arms by Jesus Santrich and Ivan Marquez, both former FARC commanders, marks a worrying new development in the accords implementation. As this subcommittee knows well, 
the regime of Nicolas Maduro is a direct threat to Colombia's peace and prosperity and that of the hemisphere and, frankly, the world. Maduro welcomes Colombian criminal groups with open arms and shelters FARC dissidents and the National Liberation Army who engage in illegal gold mining and increasingly run their drug trafficking out of Venezuela. According to estimates from the Colombian government, over 1,000 members of the ELN are currently in Venezuela. Colombian criminal groups have used a safe haven granted by the Maduro regime to regroup and rearm. At the same time, Colombia is a primary recipient of the largest mass migration in Latin America's recent history, which I have seen in my num numbers, numerous visits to Colombia. 1.4 million Venezuelan migrants and refugees had arrived as of June, with Colombian migration authorities now projecting that number could even reach 2.5 million by year-end in a moderate scenario. President Ivan Duque has adopted a policy of complete solidarity toward Venezuelans, providing medical care, housing, and public education, among other services. Still, more attention is needed to prevent a regional public health emergency that could eventually reach the United States. These factors make it critical to develop a regional consensus on how to absorb the influx of Venezuelans. Recently, Ecuador joined Peru and Chile in tightening entry requirements, thereby increasing the burden further on Colombia. Additional international support, as previously discussed, is urgently needed. Colombia has received international funds that equate to about $68 per migrant, a fraction of the $500 to $900 donated per migrant or refugee from Syria, South Sudan, or Myanmar. Beyond the strains of Venezuela, the partnership will be further solidified as the United States supports Colombia's efforts to stabilize territories, foster rural development, and advance its economic prosperity. With the U.S.-Colombia Trade Promotion Agreement, the opportunities for mutually beneficial trade with our third largest export market in Latin America are enormous. Still, both countries must implement pending aspects of the TPA to expand market ac access and investment protections. These advances will also help to provide a counterweight to China's growing influence in Latin America. The future Colombian economy can be leased through innovation and technology, as well as linking human capital to rural development. One area of opportunity is for Colombia and the United States to expand educational exchange programs. A more modern agenda is to also find new ways to promote rural development, build stronger institutions, and tackle the longstanding bilateral stress point, namely coca cultivation. Weak institutions and lack of economic opportunities in rural areas serve as the breeding ground for coca cultivation and cocaine production, illegal mining, and environmental degradation, as well as the strengthening of criminal organizations. To fully implement the peace agreement, Colombia will need the continued support of the United States and the international community. At the same time, although overall levels of violence have decreased, a new wave of violence has been unleashed against human rights defenders, community leaders, and social activists. Working with the Colombian government to stop such killings should continue to be a priority for the United States. In conclusion, this is a critical moment to stand by Colombia. A strengthened and modernized partnership will provide the United States with an even stronger partner in the Western Hemisphere at a moment of great concern. Thank you once again for the opportunity to appear before the subcommittee today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. The ranking member. Well, thank both of you. Um, you heard our discussion during the, the, um, the first panel. Uh, Mr. Marzak, your point about the international community's support for the migrants from Venezuela and Colombia is eye-opening. It's shocking. $68 per migrant versus 500 to 900 from the Syrian crisis. Um, we can't do this by government alone. We're going to have to have help from the private sector. That's been underscored in, in the Council's work. That's been one of our key points. What should we be mobilizing to help Colombia on the migrant issue 
so that they can make the progress they need to in regards to their economy, in regards to dealing with drug issues, in regards to dealing with implementing the peace process. Well, thank you, Senator Cardin, for that, for that question. Uh, as mentioned in the earlier panel, uh, the question of an international donor for conference for Columbia is, is, is fundamental. Uh, this is one of the recommendations uh, in our report, is that more, uh, more analysis is needed on specifically- We've got to get people to att countries to attend. You've got to get the countries to attend. <laughs> and, 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 the, and the numbers that are out there right now, the World Bank estimate of how much it costs Columbia, 0.4% of the GDP, that only takes into account the short-term needs that Columbia is doing, the short-term housing, the education. It, it, it is not the long-term needs that Columbia will, will have to bear to absorb uh, the millions more that could potentially be coming from Venezuela. Uh, it is pivotal that the United States and the international community work with member countries uh, to provide that, that support and convene donors to really focus on the importance of, of, of this crisis in, Col in Colombia. At the same time, what is critical is to help Colombia in a number of other areas. Uh, one of those is data gathering and collection and collection of, of, of and other collection techniques, right? The Colombians are, are trying to find for two different types of data collection efforts, one on data gathering to facilitate integration, other data gathering for security, uh, knowing who's crossing the border, knowing getting sensors, getting drones at the border. Um, on the first point on-, on, on Well, on it, that point, I'll invite both of you to respond. The chairman raises a very valid point. How do you maintain a stable government when you have a border country that's harboring your 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 terrorist, your the FARC rebuilding? Uh, do you have a you said monitor the bordering? I want to stop you on that because maybe that's part of the answer to deal with the FARC presence in Venezuela coming back into Colombia. Is Thank that you. viable? Thank you, sir. Yes, I, the, the, what the, the Colombians could tremendously benefit from increased U.S. support uh, through technology to strengthen its, its border, uh, drones, uh, sensors, to know the, the FARC, the ELN, ELN in particular, is, are frequently crossing back and forth the, the Colombian-Venezuelan border. They have impunity. Uh, dictator Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela grants them that impunity, and they use that impunity to, to target Colombian sources, uh, to launch attacks in Colombia, and then go back across that border. So the more that the United States can do to facilitate, uh, strengthen that border. We're not going to be able to put uh, uh, so, uh, uh, soldiers across that entire border, but we have the technology to be able to help the Colombians. So let me ask both of you. Uh, we applaud Colombia having an open border so Venezuelans can escape the horrific humanitarian crisis and, and, and find safe haven in Colombia. We notice more countries in the region are, going to, are requiring visas. They're starting to close their border. Uh, is Colombia right to keep the open borders? We wanted them to, but from an internal security point of view, are they right to do that? Well, first I would say uh, one of the wonderful things about the Colombian people is that they're actually quite grateful to the Venezuelan people for when during the time of, for example, yeah. Pablo Escobar, there were thousands of Colombians that had to resettle in Venezuela. So there's an unusual amount of, of goodwill, goodwill between the people uh, going in. Um, as Mr. Marzak said, unfortunately, the, the, the Colombian military is not capable of, of shoring up the border, uh, in part because the geography uh, makes it impossible. Uh, drones are certainly a good suggestion. 
I think until the Colombian people no longer have the will to uh, welcome their Venezuelan neighbors, I think that the, the, the Colombians are doing the right thing. And, and as, as uh, you both senators have suggested earlier, it's quite remarkable because they're essentially standing alone. Uh, because as you say, the other countries are, are requiring uh, visas and so on. So uh, as I mentioned in my testimony, at least for a short-term solution, I think helping the Colombians uh, manage the security situation in those specific four departments that border Venezuela, I think we could definitely make an impact. Can I, can I say, uh, just emphatically say that the model, the Colombian model, is a model to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. The way that the way that the Colombians are treating migrants and refugees should be uh, uh, broadcast around the world as an example of what you do in a, in a situation like this. The welcoming of, of of millions, and not just welcoming them, not just providing health care and housing and education services, but actually giving them the, the status so that they could actually formally work inside Colombia. Uh, the re recent granting of, of Nash, Colombian nationality to Venice, to children of Venezuelan uh, parents born inside Colombia, and, and looking at the Venezuelan migrant refugee situation as, as not about people who are going to go back the next day, but looking at how do they incorporate these people into their society. I agree completely with you. They shouldn't be penalized. They should be rewarded. And that's why we are all frustrated. There hasn't been more international support for the burden that they're bearing with open borders. But I agree with you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. So a couple of points here to tie this up. Uh, on the, uh, it's a complex situation with the migration. Number one, there's actually a substantial number of Venezuelans that also hold Colombian citizenship predating the migration. So, um, you know, that, that's a factor. The other is clearly, you know, it's interesting if you went back 25 years, it was the reverse, right? It was Colombians going into Venezuela. And so I think that gratitude uh, has played a role in this reception. But there are indications, and I'm not being critical of it, it is a natural reaction of any country that you know, we saw it very quickly happen in Peru, we saw it very quickly happen in Ecuador. There is a natural tendency at some point in time for it to begin to create fractures and pressures inside of a society. So I'm not prepared to say that there's a emerging xenophobia, but there is the beginning signs that the support for this migration has begun to sort of flag a little bit among the general population in Colombia as more and more of this burden is being fully felt. And, and that's something to be concerned about. Is, is that your assessment as well? I, I agree with that assessment, Chairman. Um, I, I think that this is, this is a phenomenon, as, as you correctly state, uh, throughout, throughout the world. Um, just recently, in a trip to Colombia, Colombia, see a news broadcast and, and seeing the, the um, um, people being labeled as Venezuelans when a, when, a, when a particular crime was, was committed. And I think that that further reinforces the need, as talked about in today's uh, subcommittee hearing, uh, for additional uh, international and U.S. support for Colombia at this critical moment. Uh, Colombia just doesn't have the fiscal resources to be able to uh, implement a peace accord, uh, deal with FARC and ELN attacks coming from Venezuela, and at the same time provide um, services and integration for millions of Venezuelans that are crossing this border. Is that your assessment as well? Yes, that's my assessment, uh, for, absolutely. And uh, as I said, uh, I think that these types of specific civil affairs efforts that Southcom and Sox South could execute could really help with that. Because, uh, I, yes, I've, I've uh, heard that the tensions are beginning to get uh, Worse, and unfortunately, of course, among the poorest of Colombia's 
citizens. Well, and, and, I, and I don't raise this to be critical of what I think is ultimately No, no, it's just natural. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and to add to it, though, I also don't want people to take for granted that what we have now is forever, that this is some sort of a permanent thing that we can accept. I, I do think that there is the potential uh, at some point for this situation to take a different direction if it continues for much longer. I do want to say, because it's been mentioned a couple times, and I don't know if this has been noted by others, and I, I failed to do so, but there was a donor conference uh, convened, I believe, by our mission at the OAS with Ambassador Trujillo and others um, a few months ago, and I think there was $100 million pledged, which is 10% or less of what the annual cost is. I'm not sure how much of that $100 million ultimately came in, but the lion's share, and I think it was noted in, I think, your testimony, Mr. Marzak, the lion's share of the international contribution has been U.S. dollars. I, I, I forgot the numbers, about 300 somewhat at this point, about 375 or 275 million or so of U.S. assistance. Uh, that's that's correct, Chairman. And and of that hundred million dollars pledged at the at the OES conference, uh, only only a fraction of that money has actually has actually uh, actually come to come fruition. In. Yeah, and and so um, and then the UN put out a call as well, and I think a very small reaction to that as well. So there have been efforts. It's not fair to say there haven't been efforts. There have been efforts to step up to get others to step up. But but frankly, um, we as policymakers don't like it. We complain about it. But we're going to have to do a lot of this ourselves if we want it done, and 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 so and be helpful, and that's why this hearing is so important. Is to sort of we can sit here and hope that others will step up, um, but ultimately we have to make a decision about whether it's in our national interest to do so or not. And, and I hope after this hearing today that we can convince more of our colleagues that. A side note, because I just don't want to forget to ask you. You mentioned Mr. Marzak the free trade agreement. I don't know what the numbers have been the last couple of years, but for some substantial period of time, it was actually a trade deal we ran a surplus on uh, of trade. I don't know if those numbers remain that way, but uh, it's a pretty good deal for the U.S. in essence. It's, it's a, it's a uh, economic, uh, it's certainly very good for Miami, where I live, and in South Florida, uh, and Florida at large, but, but it's actually a real success. We talk a lot about Plant Columbia, but one of the real successes of our relationship has been the, the, the trade. Uh, opportunities and that it's created. So I, I'm not know what the numbers. Maybe you, one of you do, but but I know for a while it was actually a surplus. It may still be the case. Um, on the military and the border, you know, one of the interesting things is, for for all their reputation of being, you know, militant, and you know, I see descriptions of Duque as more with a firmer, harder hand than than Santos, and I think the people who say that often use it to criticize them. They've actually deliberately avoided sending military units to the border. They, for example, when the, the effort was made to uh, bring in humanitarian assistance across the border in, into Venezuela, it was police units that they deployed. And one of the reasons why is the fear that if they deployed military units to the border, it could inflame tensions and lead to a military escalation. And they've also shown tremendous restraint. I think it's, there's clear evidence that not only was tear gas and other things fired into Colombian territory, but there were even intrusions by some of the National Guard elements. So I think they've shown tremendous restraint. Um, and and, I, and I, I say that only because there is a challenge there between if you, um, and, and it's something that may need to happen, but if you, uh, if you stand up and bulk up a, a military presence on the border, there are some that will accuse that of being a militarization, in essence, a provocative act in response. And I don't know if any of you have sort of thought through that or, or what the international reaction to that would be. Because I know uh, the Colombians are sensitive to it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, 
Chairman, uh, and that's why, uh, and I forgive uh, me for repeating myself, that's why these very specific um, forms of quote-unquote military presence are crucial. So that's, that's one of the functions that, you know, our version, again, civil affairs teams uh, serve, and that is uh, one of the missions of Acción Integral, is to, is to essentially actually present the military as an extension of the state, as a, a, a protector of democracy, but not in, a, in an offensive, aggressive way. And these specific programs actually are the programs designed to show the citizens that they don't have to look at the national police and the military as aggressive, as invaders, and so forth. It's, it's sort of very nuanced, but that's, that's why I feel very strongly about backing these specific programs. And I don't disagree. I think one of the challenges people aren't aware of is when the peace deal came into being and FARC elements would pull out, immediately other, the Bakrim or other criminal elements would step in and now begin to fight. And some of the violence that we keep hearing about are these different criminal elements saying, hey, there's a vacuum there now. The, the, you know, it's like if a gang abandons a neighborhood, so these four other gangs start fighting over who now inherits that territory. And that's also been a challenge to the state in dealing with, with that reality um, as well. And, and then clearly in many of these areas that have not had a government presence for a significant period of time, you know, people grew up in a culture and society where uh, government forces coming in were viewed as hostile. And, and so changing that perception is, is important. Um, I, I think one of the, the things I had hoped would come from this hearing is one of the things that you talked about, um, I think both of you really have alluded to, and that is it's t we really do need to upgrade and update. We need the... the um, you know, when you get that alert that your app has a new update, you have to, we really do need to update this relationship because it now faces a set of challenges that extend beyond Colombia's border. And frankly, um, I'm not sure that our current programs, as they're currently constructed, fully address the full spectrum of those challenges. And, and I do hope, well, obviously we'll await the work that you've done along with Senator Cardin and Blunt on, um, which I guess you'll announce or reveal next week uh, from the... Next Thursday. And is that one of the things you've looked at is how to, what that update to the app looks like? Yes, yes, yes. This is a, this is a refresher. This is the app, app 2.0. Uh, and it's how to strength, how to provide for a, a modern blueprint for a U.S.-Columbia partnership. Because one of the things that I've been, I've spoken to National Security Council about, I've spoken to the Department of State to some extent about, is we really do need uh, a more holistic approach to this that, that involves the use, for example, of the OAS, which I think has been reinvigorated, and our role in it reinvigorated, and that's been positive. Um, a look at how our existing programs coincide. But at the core of it is the argument I've consistently made, and that is that it is impossible to simply focus on Colombia as a problem or a challenge that exists within the confines of their own border. It is impossible to deal with these issues that we're discussing as long as there is a mafia acting as a government in a neighboring country, cooperating, and in some cases, potentially training and harboring criminal elements who have among their stated intent the, the overthrow of your government. And, and I think about what nation on earth could sit there and permanently tolerate that groups hostile to the government and prepared to carry out uh, 
armed attacks and, and, and killings is operating with impunity and you're basically sitting there unable to do anything about it. I think that's an intolerable situation that eventually has to come to a head one way or the other. And, um, and, and so I, I, ideally it would be a regional response to it. Perhaps the invocation of the beginning of the Rio discussion will convince more countries in the region that this is a regional response that needs to happen to this. But I just don't know ultimately how we solve any of these challenges that we're discussing as long as that situation, no matter how much they eradicate coca, no matter how much we fund the migrant situation, no matter how much they, they all these things will help. But as long as there are these armed criminal groups operating with impunity, I don't know how we, how this gets substantially improved. I don't know how you solve this problem without dealing with that specific part of the problem. Uh, that has to resolve itself. Chairman, if I, if I, if I, if I, if I may, uh, I, I uh, full, fully agree. Uh, first, our, our the, the task force report, which I look forward to, to, to sharing with you that will be coming out next week, looks at not only not only the challenges in, of Colombia being being beyond Colombia's borders, but also, frankly, the opportunities that Colombia brings. Uh, Colombia is a is a regional and a, and a global leader on security assistance. Colombia is a is a regional leader on uh, economic prosperity, on democracy promotion, and Colombia, frankly, as a regional leader through the Lima Group and working to solve the Venezuela crisis. I think, uh, as you pointed out beforehand, with regard to the influx of Venezuelans to Colombia. The, the illegality of what is occurring in Venezuela will only continue to grow the longer that Nicolas Maduro stays in power. The more that he is he squeezed, the more he's going to continue to resort to illegal groups and illegal sources of funding. And, we, and th th that illegal source of funding, uh, arms trafficking, illegal gold trafficking, arms smuggling, money laundering, this is what is helping to keep the regime uh, afloat, among other issues. And those is that, needs to be, that needs to be curtailed, or else um, uh, he will continue Continue to resort to illegality uh, and to the FARC and ELN is, is, and other and other other groups as is, is, is his supporters. Yes, I would say uh, one good thing is uh, now that the peace accord has been signed, there is no longer what was I think incredibly there was an incredibly high level of political pressure to have that deal signed at whatever cost. Uh, now. Uh, as a result, in my opinion, there were uh, certain things that, that perhaps were somewhat more permissive than they could have been with the FARC. Be that as it may, it's, it's been signed. I think it's, it's crucial for the U.S. and Colombia now to be very pragmatic without the burden of the political pressure of, of signing a deal with, with a terrorist organization. Uh, with regards to the security situation. So I actually look at this as a positive. Look, I know there's a lot of talk about, people love to talk about the deal, because I think for whatever reason uh, in our culture, we, we view deals as the answer to every problem. The problem is deals are only as good as compliance. And in a deal with a criminal organization, even if 80% of them comply, that's still a lot of armed people who never, we, you had FARC dissidents almost from the beginning. And then you had these other criminal groups that stepped into the vacuum. You still had to deal with the ELN, which was not part of the deal. And then you saw what happened when one of them decided we want to sell drugs again, and you went after them. They claimed you're violating the deal, as if somehow it gave them impunity to act. So I think it's, it's important to understand that, the, the, that um, and by the way, we also need to point out that that deal failed in a national referendum in Colombia. It, it never had the buy-in of the population and required Santos to go 
uh, through the legislative process uh, and, and twist arms to get the votes for it. But look, that's a sovereign issue for them to determine. Uh, we're here to help them either way. I, I do want to say this one more point, and that is you talk about the economic opportunities. But when someone says to you, we're going to harm the state, we're now at war with the state and they're going to try to harm you, um, that isn't just about shooting at them. It is about going after their economy. And these criminal elements know that one of the best ways to go after the Colombian economy and harm them as a, an attractive place for investment is to carry out attacks in urban centers, uh, which we haven't seen in quite a while, where they used to be commonplace in the, back in the, in the day. It's what the cartels did. When Escobar wanted to pressure the, the government uh, to provide him whatever it is he wanted at that point, which I think was just impunity, um, and be in, in, uh, as an amnesty, he blew up airplanes, he blew up in, uh, newspapers, he, he attacked in the urban centers. And so I don't think it's far-fetched that at some point in the near future, Colombian authorities are going to be aware of efforts to carry out attacks in urban centers being organized, orchestrated, and perhaps uh, financed from the territory of Venezuela. And I want people to put yourselves in their shoes for a moment. Imagine the United States was aware that there was a terrorist organization somewhere in the world plotting to attack and, and carry out attacks in our cities. We would go after them in that territory. And no one could say anything to us about it. We have a right to defend ourselves. And I don't, I don't know if, if policymakers and those who cover this have been sufficiently socialized to the fact that no matter what we're talking about here today, that is something that I think is going to happen at some point here. There, there, there will come a point where if these people are serious about waging war against the state, they will try to conduct and may even carry out successful attacks, similar to what we saw in the police academy, but at a much higher rate. And I don't... I don't know what people are, are prepared to say or do about it when, when Colombia turns to the world and say, this is unsustainable for us. We have to do something to stop this. And we have a regime next door that is unwilling to do anything about it. We're going to have to take it upon ourselves and what response that would elicit and what that could mean and what would it unfold. I don't know either of you have given thought to that contingency, which, uh, which I think is, is, is not a far-fetched one. In fact, I think it's a likely one. Uh, as, as, uh, Chairman, I, I think uh, a couple of things. One is I think it highlights as, as well the the importance of actually of implementing the peace accords in, in, in Colombia, right? That the attention to rural development in Colombia, because there's as, as you as you state, the uh, FARC and the ELN are using Venezuelan territory as an opportunity to regroup, rearm, identify targets uh, within Colombia. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there there is uh, vast swaths of Colombian territory uh, as part of the peace accords uh, that that need to be that need to be developed, and uh, and that that goes from uh, creating all alternative economic models, not just crop substitution, but actually creating new economic models in rural territories. It involves state capacity in rural territories. Uh, it involves interconnectivity, involves building secondary tertiary roads, it involves bringing electricity, uh, all these different factors that can convert rural territories from being uh, areas where, where illegal groups or criminal organizations thrive to ones where, the, where there's actually a state presence and, and a thriving economy. And so I'd like to add that, add that into part of the equation here is the need for a, a multi-dimensional strategy and the need for U.S. support for Colombia in implementing that type of multi-dimensional And I agree strategy. 100%. There's no, nothing bad and a lot of good comes from winning the hearts and minds of people who have not had interaction with the government, in many cases, their whole lives. But that, 
does not stop a criminal organization who is plotting to detonate bombs in Bogota, operating from Venezuela and then using a porous border to insert those uh, terrorists into the country to carry out these attacks. And you're the, and you're the Colombian authorities sitting there, you see this is about to happen, and you want to stop it before it does. And maybe you can intercept them at the border. Maybe your informants on the ground will tell you these guys are coming over because you have a better relationship with them. But maybe you have to go after them. And I'm not saying that's going to happen tomorrow morning. I'm just saying that that is a real, that, that's where I think this leads, knowing the, the, how these things work and knowing how these group, particular groups work. Ha, is that something you've looked at or talked about? Or? Yes. So, uh, so again, actually, roads are a huge issue. I mean, that's definitely something that keeps the poor rural uh, Colombians isolated. Uh, and by the way, when it comes to building the roads, it is their Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, they have in the past had problems because the, the perception of them by the population is that they are aggressive and so on. So, so that's, again, an example of when unfortunately sometimes it is the Army that is really the only representative of the state. Uh, whether the FARC is operating geographically beyond its border or in, unfortunately, any of the myriad of areas of Colombia where it's very difficult to access them, uh, it underscores the, the importance, again, of, of intelligence. And as, as you might remember, uh, when the DAS uh, imploded, uh, that was a significant blow to the Colombian intelligence system as in general. So um, I, I think that Again, if, if we could take a close look as to how to improve that. Um, because from, from what I experienced, having interviewed scores of our FARC, uh, some commanders and some uh, civilians, they were not, since the 90s, motivated by ideology. It was uh, whether they were forcibly recruited or uh, they, well, it's really the the fact that they can make more money, as you pointed out, trafficking drugs, et cetera, et cetera. So in terms of uh, intelligence, effectiveness of weakening a given group, um, that's the good news. In other words, uh, I think actually the ELN, despite their smaller numbers, is far more ideologically motivated and therefore perhaps a little bit tighter, uh, more difficult, excuse me, to, to penetrate when it comes to human. Uh, but I, but I do think that um, with a renewed focus on an intelligence gathering, that this is a, a way that we could uh, uh, help the Colombians combat what could be advantage now if in, uh, Maduro is in fact letting these these commanders uh, sit in his backyard. Okay, and I just have two wrap-up comments, uh, not even questions. Although if you have comment, I welcome it. The first is uh, we talk about the border because we you look at a map and there's this little there's a line. But that's not really how this worked. It's really not that. It, that. It's largely an ungoverned swath of people coming across all the time in areas. And part of it is the topography of it makes it difficult. Part of it is the lack of a state presence in some of those places because the cost of maintaining a human presence there is quite high. You have people shooting back at you. So I think that's important. A lot of people don't realize that it's a border, but it's, it's a geographic border with you know, coordinates and the like. But it doesn't function in that way. It really is more of a ungoverned corridor space in, in parts of, of it for, because it's really difficult, both because of the topography and also because of the 
violence and other things that, and, and even resources. And the last point I would make is, I don't want to misstate this either, that if tomorrow morning Maduro gets on an airplane and flies to Havana and retires, that this all goes away. The transition in Venezuela is not gonna be this linear one day to the next issue, even if in the best case scenario, even if tomorrow morning Juan Guaido was able to rightfully assume control of the apparatus of the state, um, there is reason to believe that for a substantial period of time, the Venezuelan state under new leadership would not have the capacity to deal with some of these matters. In fact, one of the biggest concerns I would have in the short term substantism of that kind is the sheer volume of people currently wearing police and army uniforms that would quickly abandon their post uh, because of the fact that they're only there now, be, uh, either because they receive some small benefit that the general population doesn't, or because of what happens to defectors and their families when they do leave. So my point is that this Venezuela problem, even if tomorrow there was a political transition that began and it was ideal, you still have a host of other capacity and societal challenges. You have armed elements, the uh, colectivo groups uh, in, in Venezuela that certainly work for the state and operate at the direction of, of the regime, uh, but who are criminals and aren't just gonna all of a sudden decide to go into open a chain of car wash or, or laundromats. I mean, so this is really complicated. I don't wanna simplify the long-term challenge that Venezuela poses uh, when you have four million, upwards of four and a half to five million people in your population, when your entire infrastructure is destroyed. Um, this is a long-term commitment we have on our hands here, even beyond um, what we're facing here today. So, Well, thank you both for being a part of it. We look forward to, uh, um, to seeing that report. I know uh, Senator Cardin's gonna get all the credit for it, so that's good, so <laughs> blunt too. Let me read it first, then I'll see. Yeah, you're right. But uh, do you have anything else? Are we? No, again, I thank the witnesses, and uh, I really do thank the, the, uh, the, the task force that, that's been set up. Uh, I, I do look forward to their report. I think it can be very helpful to us. And uh, unfortunately, we're talking more about the hemisphere because of these challenges, but I think we've talked about the hemisphere more in the last couple of years than we ever have. And so even today, with the attendance uh, of the chairman, and you saw the ranking member who's had a long commitment stay, you saw the attendance on the on the minority side, and uh, so I, I think it's good that there's more conversation happening ab about the region, and uh, unfortunately it's because of these challenges, but I, I do hope we can build some real momentum and that your report and other products that are put out could serve as sort of a, a blueprint that policymakers could take and begin to implement, so. All right, well, I wanna thank you both for your patience and time. It's been a longer hearing than we anticipated, but I'm glad it's been because it's, it's an important topic and one I care a lot about. Just as a side note, we've tried to have this hearing now for a few. Uh, we struggled to get people to sit there on the first panel for a while, but it all worked out. Yeah, the second panel was ready to go for a long time. The first one, but we got there and we're happy about that. So uh, again, I thank you um, for being here. The record will remain open for 48 hours of this hearing. With that, it, the hearing's adjourned.